0: Welcome to The Seed on the Air. I'm Zach Warehand, your host this week with Ryan McCoskey as the guest. How are you doing, Ryan?
1: Zach, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here, man. Yeah, today
0: is going to have a little bit of a different feel because I'm actually going to host and you're going to be the one sitting across the table kind of being interviewed.
1: That sounds great.
0: Yeah, we we just to tell our listeners kind of why we're doing this format, unfortunately, we lost our audio for yesterday's sermon. However, we saw this as an opportunity to really dive deeper into some of the content of Acts 17, really flush out some of what's in Ryan's notes. So we're really excited to kind of see what we can bring to the table in terms of diving
1: deeper. I'm really excited too, Zach, because yesterday after preaching, I thought, man, there's so many other practical examples or things we could have talked about. And yesterday's sermon felt a little bit kind of like Guidebooky to some degree. Like, here's your guidebook to going out and sharing the gospel in today's intellectual age. And so this podcast, I think, gives us a chance to get into some of that a little more fully. And so maybe it's a blessing that we're doing this versus the sermon audio this week.
0: Yes. And before we get started, I just personally wanted to say I was really impacted by the sermon. And so this is an honor to kind of be in the saddle on this side of the table getting to dive into this content with you today.
1: Thanks, man. That means a lot, bro.
0: Yeah, so we'll give our listeners a little bit of a roadmap. There's really kind of three goals we want to accomplish with this podcast is to really equip our gospel community leaders uh, to facilitate further discussion and, and, and for you guys to feel empowered to really flesh out the content. Secondly, we want to give a deeper, like Ryan said, more practical understanding of the philosophies that we use. You know, yesterday we talked about Epicureanism, Stoicism, Modernism, Postmodernism, Enlightenment, you know, $10 words to hopefully break those down uh, in more practical ways, and then really kind of tease out um, the what and the how of the Great Commission. Um, So, Ryan, do you want to start at any particular place?
1: You know, uh, Zach, I think it'd be great to—I loved—you said this earlier this morning, um, Zach, which which I liked a lot—you mentioned that in Christian communities— it's really common for us to talk about the why of the Great Commission. For those of you unfamiliar with the, the term Great Commission, or it's not you know bringing up where this comes from in Scripture, Matthew 28 is where Jesus tells all believers to be a part of discipling people to know the things that Jesus taught and to live the things that Jesus taught. Right? That's right. But often in Christian communities, we'll tell people, hey, you need to share the gospel and be about the glory of Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus tells you to. And, and that's really good. But then we sometimes don't dig into, well, how exactly do I do that in my context? And what would that look like? And so, Zach, if you want to run with it, um, what do you think was the why for, for Paul in sharing the gospel in Acts 17?
0: Well, I think, I think the sermon... That heat that Paul preached in Acts seventeen really gives a good model and a really practical example of the what and the how. However, in verse sixteen, Paul shows up in Athens, and and it says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And it kind of reminds me of the verse where where Jesus looks out on the cro- on he looks out on the crowds, and he felt compassion for them because they're harassed and helpless. Mm. There's a similar type of emotional response that I think Jesus had when he looked at the lost and, and, he, and he felt compassion for them. And I feel like this is the same kind of spirit that's happening with Paul. So kind of even teasing out the why, not jumping over the why, but why do you think that Paul and Jesus really had this type of compassion?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that the, the doctrine of the Imago day is that everyone is made in the image of God. And Scripture really lays out, especially in the Psalms, you see this a lot, we actually aren't satisfied unless we experience deep personal communion with the God who made us. And without that deep personal communion, we chase things to try to fill us. We chase things to give us an identity or a purpose. And so when Paul walked into Athens, I think what he saw is a city full of idols or people who were made in the image of God, but don't know the true God are chasing all these things to find hope and identity and meaning and purpose. And and so the why for Paul was I love these people, though I don't know them. I love them because they're made by the same God who made me. And I know this God Yeah. And, and he loves people and wants to redeem them. I want to see them freed from these lies.
0: Yeah. So not to go too deeply down this track, but could you give us your why maybe even for preaching or ministry or, you know something that comes to you frequently of why why are you passionate about sharing the gospel?
1: Yeah, that's really good, man. You know, I, I've I'm really moved by C.S. Lewis and other thinkers of the faith, and uh, that that's kind of been what's feel like maybe grow the most in Christianity is just using my mind to lead me to worship. So I, I don't generally like listen to a song and feel moved emotionally and then want to worship. It's more like my mind makes sense of something in the Bible and it begins to transform me. And then I kind of feel like in the mood to worship, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the why for me has just been, I've experienced in scripture so many times that there is something about knowing God, knowing him, in his word, knowing him in prayer that just meets needs that nothing else in the world can. Yeah. And, uh, and Jesus has done so many things in my life that nothing else has done or can do. Yeah. And so I, I just have this desire to see the seed church where I pastor just be a place where people are really experiencing the presence of God in their life. Yeah. And uh, it's just something I'm passionate about and and want to see more people experience that. Yeah. So
0: let's transition more into, um. you know, have your, uh, luckily I have your notes right in front of me, which uh, I feel lucky to be kind of carrying this this document in front of me there's a there's a part in here that we referenced in the sermon yesterday that says there are many christian leaders that are struggling to reach younger generations in their culture because they're operating in a different form of thought so referencing enlightenment modernist thinking and postmodernist thinking would you be willing to tease these out for us today and hopefully we can get a better understanding of of these schools of thought
1: Yeah, that's great. Thanks for asking that, Zach. So one thing I'd shared yesterday is that in our history as a country, there's been three major movements of thought. And the first was the Enlightenment. And that began a long, the basis of that began a long time ago. We're talking probably mid 16th century. But the Enlightenment was also called the Age of Reason, in which people began to recognize through science and exploration of this world, we can begin to understand how things work. And so the way people thought about finding truth or finding meaning in the age of the Enlightenment was, can I prove this scientifically? Is this something empirically provable? And so basically, Enlightenment thinking led people to think, man, I'm going to build my life around what do I know is true scientifically? I can just prove that. Well, then what happened was, is as time went on, uh, science, of course, helped us progress significantly. But roughly around the mid 19th century, 1850s, you began to see the growth of what's called modernism, which would be a departure from enlightenment thinking. And modernism was very rooted in pragmatics, which basically means it doesn't really matter if something is scientifically true, we just need to know what works for society. So basically, uh, John Dewey, who um, was a father of pragmatism and helped to to, uh, set up the public school system, his belief was, we don't need to know what's true, what's not true. That question's irrelevant. The question is, in a culture, what do we do that helps mankind the most? What do we do that helps us progress together? And part of the reason why modernism came up was just because of disillusionment from wars and brokenness and finding out that actually science and reason doesn't answer everything. Well, then roughly around the early to mid 20th century, we are now in this movement called post-modernism, sometimes also termed high modernism. And essentially, this has gone even a step further where instead of asking, is this scientifically provable? And also, instead of asking, does this work for the culture or, or does this help mankind make progress? The question is, does this work for me? Is this something that works in my life? Does this make me happy? Does this make me feel fulfilled? Does this self-actualize me? Is this something that moves me towards self-esteem and reaching my dreams? And so, uh, Zach, I guess to, to take all this I just shared and make it very practical, Sometimes, like in our current culture, someone will say, okay, I want to share the gospel. Here's how I'll do it. I'm going to go to someone with a whole bunch of facts, and I'm going to prove the resurrection. Right. I'm going to open up the gospels and say, hey, look at this information. Look at this scientific data. Look at all this historical stuff. Clearly, it's, it's most reasonable to believe that even though this is miraculous, that the, the resurrection really happened. That's an enlightenment way of thinking about sharing. Yeah. But there are a lot of people in our culture who would just literally say, "I just don't care." I don't I don't want to read a book on history or science or reason. I'm I'm not moved by a whole bunch of facts. Like I don't I don't build my life around in my decisions around what scientifically makes sense. Right. I just don't think that way, right? Well, then another way that's been common to evangelize and still pretty common in kind of older Christians today would be Okay, we're not going to talk about how the resurrection is provable, but we're just going to prove that Christian morals are best for society. Yeah. That's modernist thinking. Groupthink. That's groupthink. That's yeah. that's like that's pragmatic. So, we're going to pre uh, we're going to help you understand pragmatically if you would just believe in Jesus and raise your kids to know Jesus and be a good moral person, your life will go better. It'll be better for the culture, it'll be better for for everybody. And so you're appealing to this modernist way of thinking that it doesn't really matter per se, if this is provable, scientific, but it, it just, it works for everyone. It's better for all of us. But the way people think today in the postmodern age is this, does this make me happy? Does this fulfill me? Does this put me on a personal trajectory I want to be on? Does this help me find love and meaning and identity? Is this something I can stake my flag in that helps me put my head on my pillow at night? Postmodernism is been also called rampant individualism. Yeah. There's just like a strong individualistic thought process. And so understanding those lines of thinking is really important because it helps us see when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're engaging with someone else's worldview. And so a lot of people we know today, whether or not we know it or they know it, they think in a postmodern way. Right. They think about, will this work for me? Will this make me happy? Will this fulfill me? Will this help me? feel more like I'm I'm succeeding in my life or I'm becoming someone who's worthy of imitation or adulation uh, and so that, that I wanted to share that in the sermon yesterday because it helps us get in the mindset that Paul did that in Athens right
0: and you see that these philosophies aren't new to the 21st century that they've they really have repeated themselves at different forms of history however would you A question I was wondering is, would you say one of the catalysts for the postmodern movement and the individualist movement would be having your own platform on social media or, you know, going away for college? And so it's kind of about your degree and, and your major and your life and your career and then your family and kind of departing from your own. What would you say? What would you say is the catalyst for this kind of new shift in thinking?
1: Yeah, that's really good. You know, the the, the intellectual roots of postmodernism are pretty old and there's lots of philosophers we could talk about, but but for the sake of brevity, we'll just talk about Immanuel Kant for a moment. Immanuel Kant taught uh, or, or kind of opened up the idea that what if what we experience in the world, what if it's not really rooted in the objective reality of something, but the subjective way I experience it? Perception. Perception. So... Uh, In The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis writes that he was reading this English textbook and someone was teaching the kids saying, when you look at a beautiful waterfall, the waterfall is not beautiful. What's happening is in your mind, you are perceiving that the waterfall is beautiful and that's why you would say it's beautiful. The word he uses is sublime, not beautiful. But the point is, is, is Kant was one of those philosophers that began to open up this line of reasoning What if all of reality or or the most important parts of reality aren't bound up in the objective world around us, but the subjective experience each individual has in this world? Right. So that kind of began the roots of, like, here's a popular way of saying what what, what Kant's theory moved into. Hey, what's true for you may not be true for me. Hmm. That's where that comes from. That idea that your subjective perception of reality builds a different universe than mine. And though we're using the same objective things out in the world, what matters most is what's happening internally. Yeah. So that's kind of like some of the intellectual roots of postmodernism. I will say this, though. Because postmodernism moves you away from objective truth, identity becomes an enormous issue for people. Yeah. So... If I am objectively created in the image of God and that's what matters most regardless of how I feel about it, that gives me an identity that can get through anything. God loves me. God has me. God wants me. God knows me. No matter what situation I'm in, my identity is child of God, objectively true. But that's not postmodern thinking. Right. Right. That, that would be rooting something in like an absolute truth claim from the Bible. Now, if we move to postmodernism and there's not something to objectively make me who I am. I'm stuck in subjectivity, which means the perceptions of other people matter immensely, right? Because if the most important part of reality is tied up in individual perceptions, not objective truth, what all these people say about me drives so much of how I live my life, right? And so now all of a sudden, my identity is my beauty, my identity is the brands I wear. My identity is my bank account. Yeah. My identity becomes all these things that I kind of wear as like markers and images of who I am to create a sense of, of a, someone liking me, wanting me, and that's what affirms my value. And so that's part of what happens in postmodern thinking is people think so individualistically, they're actually incredibly hungry for something that objectively says to them, you're loved and you're valuable. That's good.
0: So let's, just circling back around to your notes, so why would you say Christian leaders in today's culture are struggling with reaching this new school of thought?
1: That's great, man. Part of it is uh, when ideas come through seminaries or major universities, it takes a long time for them to actually work out, like in the common parlance of an age or the vernacular. And so some of it is you've just got people that have been raised up in seminaries taught by folks about how to think through sharing the gospel, and it just hasn't happened yet that they've really come to terms with what's really happening on the ground level in terms of how people are actually thinking and processing. That's some of it. Uh, You know, like a a great example is Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ. It's a really good book. I would recommend it to believers and non-believers. It has some great evidence for the resurrection. It's really, really well done, uh, and, and so it's valuable to have. Like, there are people that are still going to be very moved to think through how can we believe that a, that like the resurrection could have happened historically. There's actually a ton of evidence for the reality that yeah, although it's a miracle he rose from the dead, it 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 actually seems like the most likely thing that Jesus was not in that tomb anymore. Right. Like, how else do you explain why these guys give their lives? to something if it was a lie. And how do you explain the proliferation of Christianity and the extra biblical writings of Josephus that really helped to confirm some of these things that scripture teaches. But the reality is there are just lots of people that are living their life, working their job, doing their thing. And the way they're thinking about their life is what works for me. And they just, they're not going to slow down and read a book about evidence for the resurrection. Right. Maybe after they become believers, here's a good distinction I want to make here. As a believer, you need to care about all these things. So like Philippians chapter two, Paul teaches this, be like Christ and care about the needs of others more than your own needs. That's like that. That's a teaching from the Bible. As a believer, we have to have some modernist thinking, so to speak, modernist philosophy that we care about what's best for mankind. We should care about that. But what we're talking about right now is when you're evangelizing to someone, how do you get them into opening their mind and destabilizing their worldview to see the beauty, the truth, and the value of Jesus? Yeah. And so you have to like understand, like, is this someone who um, would be really helped by scientific reason and enlightenment-type thinking? Is this someone who really cares about culture and social justice and what's best for people and you communicate, Hey, if people were actually believers, like if people actually held to the Bible, it would fix sex trafficking. Right. Like this, you're actually, if you know Jesus, you treat women in a way that the world does not know how to treat women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or is this someone just thinking about man, I want to live my life and do my own thing. Uh, and they need to understand actually Jesus can solve your personal problems. Yeah. Jesus can fulfill you in a way your career won't. Right. Right. Right.
0: So as we're kind of moving through the sermon yesterday, Paul really grasped this concept and really understands the culture in which he's speaking into. It says in Acts seventeen, or excuse me, Acts seventeen, eighteen, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So that's really the audience that he's that he's really speaking to. Right. So Paul quotes one of their philosophers in his sermon, so we know that he's well-read, he's mm. well-informed. Could you break down some of um, the, the the Stoic and Epicurean belief system um, to give a better understanding of how and what Paul did to enter into their context?
1: That's great. Yeah, so Epicureans, easiest way to say it is, Epicureans were thoroughgoing materialists. And what that means is, even though we're talking first century Athens, we're probably talking somewhere between you know, 40, 50 AD, something like that, um, they did not believe in an afterlife or any sort of supernatural thing beyond the material world. That's what, from a philosophical standpoint, that's what it means to be a materialist. You just believe in the material atomic structure of the world and of course an ancient epicurean would not talk about atoms because we didn't talk about atoms till the scientific revolution and studying giving a name for that to have microscopes and things to to see that but even though they didn't have that scientific uh understanding there was still a philosophy that basically said there's nothing but this world so um, you could say, I said this yesterday, uh the lowbrow version of Epicureanism would be YOLO. <laughs> you only live once, man. So I need just, to
0: look at my Instagram and see if I have any YOLO hashtags. Yeah, just gonna there. YO yeah. I'm gonna change them to Epicurean. <laughs> see if people get it. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Epicurean. That's such a bad joke. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like that's the way to think about it is You only live once. So just like live your life and don't worry about the afterlife or sin or a god or gods or any of that stuff because it just doesn't matter and you're wasting your time. Uh, And I quoted Richard Dawkins yesterday, a modern day atheist, who sounds a lot like what the Epicureans would have believed, right? And so Dawkins basically has a quote about, uh, be thankful for the life that you have and don't waste your time on this vain and presumptuous idea that you're going to have a second one. You know, just focus on the life you have and be thankful for that. That's very Epicurean. Now, Stoicism, on the other hand, was um, a philosophy that was pantheistic. Pantheism means that you see God or some sort of divine spark or presence in everything. So Stoics uh, would have you know, subscribed to the Roman pantheon of gods and maybe even other pantheons of gods and Believe that within themselves and nature around them, they could get in touch with some sort of divine spark that would give them meaning and communion with a higher power and give them a sense of identity. And so, in a lot of ways, uh, the modern self help industry is rooted in a lot of stoicism. Right. You know, uh, even like uh, if I would just say that the ministry of some Christians who would teach like pseudo-Christian things like Joel Osteen, he actually has a book titled The Power of I Am. And, and it's kind of a, a concerning title, of course, because God calls himself I Am in Exodus. But Osteen's books would say, you as an individual have great power when you say over yourself, I am, and then fill in the blank. So I am beautiful. I am successful. I am And and it it verges on this, you enter your life and you can like get in touch with this like divine spark in yourself and this divine reality in everything. And as you speak these words of power over yourself, you're getting in touch with deeper meaning and and divinity. And that's not Christianity, right? Right. That's that's pantheism. Um, So what's kind of cool about it is while words like Epicureanism and and Stoicism sound very old and, and like old dead philosophies. In a lot of ways you can draw an equal sign between atheism and epicureanism, and you can kind of draw an equal sign between stoicism and then people who say things like, I'm spiritual but not religious.
0: Right. There's just a rebranding yes. in philosophy. And and I come from a marketing and advertising background, and there was a there was a quote thrown around that marketing runs the world. And and I think I think that's not completely true. However, I think the philosophy and idea behind that of, you know, there is this golden thread of recycling, rebranding, renaming philosophy, you know, philosophies that are in the world. And, and you can see that there's a complete parallel between what, what ideas were exchanged and traded in the ancient world with some new facts today are the same type of philosophy ideas that are exchanged and traded In today's world,
1: that's really good. And it's helpful because it makes us feel more. One of the things that that really shows, Zach, is the truth of scripture that people fundamentally don't really change. Right. We change the power of the spirit to be transformed, but like the same things that have animated human hearts back then still animate hearts today. We want to be connected to something meaningful, we want to have lives that matter. We want to try to answer the big questions of why we're here and and what we're supposed to be doing. And so, you know, the Epicureans take the angle of let's let's quit wasting our time on ideas of eternity and just enjoy the life in front of you. Just jump all in, YOLO. You know, yeah. Pe- people still think that way. Yeah. You know, but people also think about there there is something out there. There's something else that animates me, and I want to get in touch with this like divine presence or spark in different things and and and, you know like honestly a lot of the things that you would hear maybe oprah or deepak chopra or rob bell talking about it has this element in it of kind of a pantheistic uh, sort of bent towards moving in the world in such a way that you you connect with you know powers and I'll just do like this spiritual patchwork of like learning a bit about Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and mysticism and Taoism and just kind of like build this patchwork spirituality that kind of works for me. Right. Right. That's, it's very stoic, kind of mixed with postmodernism.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see that being uh, very true on college campuses. Just working recently in college ministry, some of the ideas that are exchanged and traded on a university setting really kind of fall in line to a very rel- relativist thinking. Um, being in my master's degree right now, I, I spend a lot of time on a college campus and get to exchange ideas with other people pursuing their degrees. And it's very much a, well, what works for you here type of question kind of gets thrown around as almost an answer to to these questions. And so there's got to be some sort of academic integrity intellectual honesty that gets paired with some of these questions of, you know, if we're going to find what's true, you know, we really need to find what's true. Yeah. And so Paul kind of enters into this here. And can you kind of walk us through Paul's method here as he's he's deconstructing a worldview, but also constructing one at the same time?
1: Yeah, that's great. So Paul has a method that he uses that any of us can use. And so this, we're going to kind of turn the angle now. And use the rest of this time to talk about the the how and the what of sharing the gospel. Like, how did Paul do this? What did he share? And maybe this will be instructive for gospel communities or you individually as you listen to this. So Paul began by doing something that is always helpful to do. He began by affirming something that both he and his listeners both agreed on. And so he began with this. He said... First part of his sermon, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. That was not a slight or saying something sarcastic. He's really encouraging them and saying, people of Athens, you know, I visited your city here and, and I can see like you really care about religious things. You care about understanding things beyond just your own little space. You know, and, and Athens was a city of, of a lot of cultural history history. And a lot of philosophical conviction, and so, you know, he's—he—it's he, almost kind of like he says something, and everyone in their mind is saying, "Go on, you know, keep keep talking. We're listening." But then what Paul does is—is is he begins to show that he's seeing something in their worldview or in their space where just maybe they've missed something. So he's going to affirm them, help to understand them, and here's how Paul goes on to preach. He says. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, objects of their worship were all the idols that were in the agora or the marketplace, I even found an altar on which was inscribed, quote, to an unknown God, end quote. Then Paul says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Here's what Paul's pointing out. Uh, the Stoics, especially, not so much the Epicureans, the Epicureans. Believe that there may have been gods out there, but they had no connection to anyone and didn't matter because they were YOLO, right? They were, live this life now, let's not think about the afterlife. But the Stoics were very interested in being connected to divinity in some way. And so just in case maybe they had like missed some unknown God, maybe there's some God somewhere who's over the top of something and they don't want to anger that God or miss out on the blessings of that God, they made an altar that said to an unknown god. And archaeologically, there are lots of places we've actually found many different statues that have some phraseology of unknown gods or to the unknown gods. It was a common thing in the ancient world. So here's what Paul's basically saying: he said, Hey, listen, I see you're religious. That's really good. I'm religious too. That's a really good thing just to think about the world that way. But hey, I noticed there was a statue to an unknown god, which means you guys are open to the idea that perhaps there's a God you don't know. And so Paul goes on to say, when he says, what you worship in ignorance, I'll tell you about. He's saying, he's kindly saying to them, I actually know this God that you don't know. Can mm. I tell you about him? Mm. I actually know this God that you're looking for. You're, you want to be connected to some divine spark. You want meaning. You want purpose. You want to know why you're here. You want to have a trajectory to your life. I actually know the God who can do that for you. Can I tell you about him? That's kind of what Paul's doing right now. So he begins to share a bit of the gospel. I shouldn't say the gospel quite yet. He's not sharing about Jesus yet, but just kind of baseline things about our triune God. Here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things from one man. He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And so here's here's the next point I want to point out after sharing something with him about who God is, Paul quotes an expert on which they both agree.
0: Yes. That's a real key thing. Yes.
1: Paul quotes someone that all of his audience would say, oh yeah, we listened to that guy. That guy's one of our poets. But Paul in his Christian worldview can't affirm what this person has said right here. When Paul quotes, for we are also his offspring, Paul would say, yeah, we are the offspring of God. We're Mago Dei, made in his image. So one of the things that we can do in evangelism, especially in a postmodern age, where people just want to know what works for them, they don't really care if they know everything about a particular expert or what they believe or where they come from. But if you can get to know someone well enough to know who do they really follow, who's someone they really listen to in the culture, a a band, a certain author, a, a business person, what is it? Can you get to know that person well enough and find something in that expert, something they say that you can affirm along with the other person?
0: Yeah, I see I see that Paul really, if you just zoom out and look kind of analytically at his method, he's really focused on one thing at the beginning of here. It's just building a bridge. Yep. And that there's a chasm between the two worlds, the two worldviews, their culture, their belief system. And Paul has one mission, just build a bridge. That's right. And so can you think maybe to dive into this some more, when does Jesus kind of use the same technique and, and, and maybe not in an intellectual way, but when he's pursuing somebody that he's building a bridge with them as well.
1: If you don't mind, I'll, can I use a more modern example? Cause it might feel more practical for some folks. I mean, yeah. Jesus is eminently practical, yeah. but he's in ancient Jewish culture is when he lives. I want to talk about Lecrae for a moment. Yeah. And the other guys in the one, one, six click who, who, uh, are just really at the front line of sharing the gospel through hip hop. Yeah. So in in a lot of Lecrae's songs, uh, he'll often quote other rappers. He'll talk about other rappers and what they've said, and he'll really affirm something that gives him a voice in hip hop culture. Here's something he's consistently done in a lot of his songs. He said, Hey, listen, you've got these rappers that you listen to who are talking about being hard and being on the streets and dealing with difficult things and, like talking about what inner city life feels like growing up in poverty and brokenness. But then Lecrae will say this, Hey, these guys are rapping about this, but you know where they live? They live in mansions in the suburbs. Yeah. You know how they dress when they go to business meetings in $10,000 suits? Yeah. You realize when they get on stage, they dress up like their inner city. They don't know anything about living in that space. And then Lecrae will say, I do. In fact, yeah. I still live in that space. In fact, as we write music and make money on it, we're not living in mansions. We're actually planting churches and staying in the inner city to love people there. So if what you value in your hip hop is real, we're real. Mm. So it's, but what he can do is he can actually take secular rappers and affirm things they've said. So people who have no sense of Christian rap, but what he's doing, which we'll see what Paul does in a moment, Lecrae is destabilizing the worldview. He's saying, hey, we agree on this expert We want what's real. We want what's true. We want people who can sing and talk about life in a way that we feel. We grew up poor. We grew up broken. We grew up abused. We want rappers who can really connect with that. Lecrae says, yes and amen. Absolutely. Hey, but you realize those guys don't actually live that. Mm -hmm. Those guys can rap about that all day long, but it's a show. That's what it is. But I'll tell you what, there are those who are really living that and, and you're invited to come be a part of that. So Paul... What Lecrae does is he basically can take an an outside critic, forgive me, maybe not an expert, in this case, just another rapper in the secular world, but find something they rap and affirm that with the audience and say, man, we agree. We agree with Ice Cube on this. We agree with the NWA that there's issues with how African Americans have experienced American culture and real racism. We agree with some of these things. But you need to understand these guys aren't actually real in a way we're trying to be real, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm tracking with you, yeah. So here's what Paul does like to to connect that. Um, After Paul shares the expert, he says this, verse 29, since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So this is where Paul is destabilizing. He's saying, hey, your expert poet says that we're the offspring of God, and I agree with you on that. But if we're actually the offspring of God and we're capable of all this, why are we worshiping stones and silver and gold in a marketplace? Have you ever processed and thought about that if we are the offspring of God, don't you think whoever made us would probably be more complicated than we are? Hmm. If, If we're capable of this kind of thought and action and emotion in this world, if we're the offspring of a God, do you really think that God is going to be known based on some statue that you carved last weekend? Mm -hmm. Or maybe this God actually is someone much bigger. Maybe this God is someone you don't know. Maybe you could meet God today. Mm. Right? And so that's when Paul brings in Jesus. Therefore, having overlooked the time of the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, which means to turn away to repent of trying to find your own gods, to find your own identity, your own purpose, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, speaking of Jesus, he has pro- he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul preaches about Jesus and talks about the resurrection, but he does not enter in and land Jesus until he's drilled to the center of their worldview. He's, he's drilled into the core of who they are and what they believe. And only then does he begin to destabilize and try to blow up and change the worldview to bring them to Jesus.
0: Yeah. And you almost need permission to do that in some ways by really connecting and building that bridge. Yep. Cause, cause there's really just two tactics that Paul uses. The first is build the bridge. And the second is pose the question hmm. in a way that destabilizes and get them to process in that same way of wouldn't you think, you know, worshiping stone and gold and straw doesn't make sense if you're if you're off, offspring from that? Yep. You know, there's some, there's some logical inconsistency there.
1: Yep. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I, let me give one more practical example, Zach, and then you can ask whatever you want to kind of drive it. Um, one of the things I've seen a lot, I'm sure you guys have too, is there's lots of people in our culture that want to say, always lead to God. That's a real common thing that do enough good. Don't do that much bad. And and no matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, you'll be on a good path. Now, here's why people believe that it's very understandable because they want to be humble. They hear Christians saying, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the way Christianity is the way. And they're saying, man, that sounds so arrogant to us that you would know the truth. We're just going to say that we know all all always. And that's what way more humble. So here's the question. How do you destabilize that worldview? And and it's really pretty simple. As believers, we're just saying, we don't know everything, but we've experienced Jesus in relationship. We've experienced the power of the word and we believe what he says. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But for you to say that always lead to God means that you're an expert in every religion. It actually means you've been on the mountaintop of all human learning and all religious experience, and you can actually vouch that everything anybody would believe, as long as they're sincere, leads them to God. Is that really humble? Is that right. really humble to say that always lead to God? Because you're actually communicating that you know more than any adherent of every religion because you know every religion perfectly to know it leads to God. Right. Right? Like that's a way of destabilizing a worldview, it's a way of saying, what you want is to have a humble belief, right? What you want is, is to have something to communicate arrogance. That's a really good thing. I'm with you as a believer in, in Jesus. I believe in humility, but you see, we just, we just believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us because we've come to Jesus and experienced him. And so we walk in humility while we proclaim Jesus, because we believe this is true, right? But, but on your end, you're believing that, you know, everything really, right? How, how do you really know that all religions lead to God? It's just a way of asking a question that gets someone to slow down and destabilizes what they believe just enough that you can help them see what you want, which is humble belief that's not arrogant. Only Jesus can do that in your life. Yes. Yeah. A, doc- a doctrine that all religions lead to God is not going to fix that. What's going to fix that is a savior who carries the cross and gives his life for those who are weak and broken and needy. And that savior can teach you to live the same way. And to walk in humility, what we're trying to show people is what Paul was showing people: what you want, this divine spark that you want to connect with, this sense of meaning, this sense of knowing things, and and like having a direction in life that's meaningful. There's only one person who can do that for you, and it's Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's what good. Paul's doing.
0: That's good. And it's it's cool to see that this model, um, as we as we kind of bring this time to the close, we see that. In verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. That's great. So let's talk, just with the final minutes here, just even some of the response here of the crowd and of the audience um, to the truth.
1: That's great. Zach, I'm I'm glad you said that because it's really helpful and I think encouraging for believers. There's actually three responses to Paul's sermon. Uh, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. That's response one. So some ridicule Paul at the Oropagus after he's preaching and saying, "What, this is crazy, man. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're just belittling him. So you could say that's rejection. They're rejecting Paul and the gospel. Second response, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So there's some who were The questions and the destabilizing force of Paul's evangelistic presence was enough to make them say, I'm not sure I know what's going on here, but there's something I'd like to know more about. But there's also a third response. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. That's the third response. So some people, after Paul's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit Used that sermon in the Oropagus and converted some people that very day, and they became believers. And so, I think it's really helpful and instructive for us. Paul's success in that Oropagus had nothing to do with the results; it had to do with his faithfulness to share. That's right. That's where success is. It's it's uh, if you go to the Old Testament, uh, let me give you two examples just to kind of blow uh, just kind of blow up the idea that your success is is wrapped up in results and not faithfulness. Jeremiah is one of the most faithful prophets of the Old Testament. He's called the weeping prophet because God tells him early in his ministry, you're going to preach truth for your entire ministry. And I'm just going to tell you up front, no one's going to listen to you, but I love you and I'm with you and I've called you, so do not quit. Jeremiah's ministry, if his success is based on results, he is one of the most worthless, unsuccessful prophets in the Old Testament. Because even though he preaches for years and years, Israel still gets judged for their sin and, and no real repentance happens. Yeah. Now let's talk about Jonah. Jonah runs from God, abandons his calling, pursues himself. A fish eats him, spits him out at Nineveh. He preaches a nine-word sermon begrudgingly and the entire city tears their clothes and puts dust and ashes on their heads to repent. Mm. Jonah doesn't even want them. Jonah actually is hoping he sits outside the city after they repent because he's hoping it is not real. And he's going to see the fire of God come down and destroy all those Ninevites because there was serious racial and national tension between uh, Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the Assyrians and, and the Jews. So you have one prophet who's faithful his whole life and sees no results. Another prophet who's disobedient says nine words and has amazing results. Your success is not determined on results. It's faithfulness. Yeah. The point of Jonah is not, oh, wow, look how great Jonah is. The point is, Jonah was a fool. Look yeah. how good God is.
0: And, and I think even relating this to the postmodern thought that when we share the gospel in a lot of ways, you know, the first hurdle to get over is that this isn't to build your own platform. Yes, and I wish there was a nicer way and maybe a more delicate way to to do this because Jeremiah didn't have a big Twitter following, he didn't have a mega church he didn't he didn't have those things after years and, and decades of faithful ministry, faithful sowing and watering of the seed. And you see, Paul comes out and admits this, this. You know, I I planted the seed. Apollo watered us, but God ultimately made it grow. Yep. And and I think in a postmodern thought, it's it's really easy when we're receiving the gospel to really kind of think about okay, how do we, you know, work with this worldview? But also as sharing it, it's it's I'm not building my kingdom. I'm not building my platform. I'm not gonna just do what works because that really kind of puts us into the stoic type of thinking. Yep. You know, okay, we we start making exceptions when the word of God doesn't. Yep. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to really get over, kind of getting over your own flesh and wanting that same type of platform that maybe Paul had or, you know, even the following Jesus had. If I'm doing it right, I'd be like Jesus and, having masses and all of these things. Yep. But that's not the biblical narrative of faithful ministry.
1: It's not. It's good Zach. I think I think in Christian communities you can find three types of building that happens. Two of them are destructive and one of them's good. Platform building, wall building and bridge building. Hmm. So platform building would be I want my faith in following Jesus to to align with people pleasing. I want that as I'm successful in ministry or successful whatever God's given me, that people praise me, give me adulation, celebrate me. And, and so the problem is we live in a celebrity culture, and there's actually a lot of churches and pastors that they have made a decision to walk away from faithful ministry because they've counted the cost of being faithful, and the cost is loss of reputation, loss of money, loss of platform, and they're not willing to do it because they love the platform that's been built more than they love Jesus. That's just reality in our culture. So you have platform builders. You also have wall builders. They want to evangelize because they want to win arguments. Yeah. That's what they want. They, they There's a unhealthy desire for argumentation and quarrels, and they want to build these walls and have this us and them world of, we've got it right. We know what we're doing. Our arguments are better. We're going to blow you up every chance we get. What we need is more bridge builders. Yeah. You know, we don't need more platforms. We don't need more walls. We need folks who can build bridges from the teaching of scripture to the modern context and help people understand why Jesus is the only one who can give them what they want, right? Because it's so good, man. Augustinian theology, he's a church father. He, he helped flesh out from the Bible something that was big in C.S. Lewis's writing and many others. And that here's the idea is that sin is a parasite. Sin takes something that's good and twists it. And so like someone who goes and steals something, they don't steal because they love stealing. They steal because they love the item they want to get. They they see money, which can be a good thing and used for a, a good reason. But sin is this parasite that takes a good thing and twists it. And so no matter who you're talking to or who's in your life you want to share the gospel with, what they actually crave in their soul, whether or not they can put their finger on it, is a good thing. Right. They want to be fulfilled. They want to be known. They want to be secure. right? They want hope. They don't want to be wh- wh- whatever it is. Like That's what's there. And so you're just trying to help someone process the trajectory you're on and the worldview that you have latched to to find what you're trying to find. You will never find it. And so what we're trying to do is help destabilize that worldview enough that they would see, that they would recognize, man, this is a dead end. This is a cliff at the end of this. And then we would help them turn to Jesus in faith, repent of where they're moving and turn toward Jesus and faith. That's what we're trying to do. That's a good word picture there too.
0: That's good. As we're kind of bringing this home, do you have any kind of final thoughts or comments that you'd like to add into this?
1: Um, Man, I I think that, uh, I think I'm just excited to be at the seed and in a church culture where I feel like we've really, uh, over the years, wanted to create a place where people can come and know God and be on a journey toward Him. Uh, and, And my desire is just that there would be a growing Hunger of what Paul experienced in Acts 17, 16, that out of love for people and love for the glory of God, we would just be dissatisfied to look out in the culture and see the things that people are holding fast to to find a sense of meaning, right? Because we need to know the what and the how, but like if we can't establish the why of evangelism, why does it matter that I share my faith? If that doesn't get lodged in us, We could hear what and how practical tips all day long, but we'll do nothing with it until there's a real sense that, man, it is like a travesty and heartbreaking that there are people that are trying to find fulfillment outside of the God who made them. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for your time this morning and listeners. We just want to say thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to reach out. We hope that this um, message really impacts your heart impacts the way that you share the gospel um, and really impacts the way that you're processing the, the culture around you. So don't feel afraid to reach out if you have any other questions or want more clarification, and we'll see you next week.